Huh? Okay. Uh, all your babies are dismissed at this time. You are to follow Sister Walker, and she'll lead you to the right place. I think I've done something. Are we good to go? I think we're good to go. I think I, I actually hear myself this time. All right. Let the church say amen. Uh, let the church say amen again. If God has been good to you, say amen. If uh, God has been better to you than you've been to yourself, say amen. You know, if God woke you up this morning, say amen. If your alarm clock woke you up this morning, don't say nothing. <laughs> Fact of the matter is, your alarm clock didn't wake you up. If you think it did, set it for 6 o'clock and take it down to the cemetery. <laughs> See how many folk get up when the alarm goes off. No, it's God that's done all these good things. In fact, James tells us in 117 that all good blessings come from above. So that's a good thing to be here this morning. Even your birthplace is a blessing from God. You know you had nothing to do with who your parents were? Now, I know you're pretty smart and you're pretty bright, but you had absolutely nothing to do with who your parents were, and also you had nothing to do with where you were born. All of these things come from the Lord. Even your birthplace is determined by God, for the Bible says in Acts 17 and 26, he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of this earth. And has, notice this, determined their pre-appointed times. That simply means that God determined that it was better for you to be born in this century as opposed to some other century. How many would like to have been born uh, living in Genesis 6 before the flood? Uh, I get no takers, right? Because you might not have made it through. I think only eight did. So God thought it would be better for you to live in this generation at this time. Also, it says that he determined the boundaries of our dwelling or the habitation of our dwelling place. That simply meant that God determined where you would be born. Like I said, you had nothing to do with that. And why would God do this? Verse 27 says, so that he should seek, so that we, they should seek the Lord. Why? And hope that they might, notice this word, grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. That word grope, interesting, carries the idea of feeling around in the dark as if you can't see, so you're feeling your way through. So we're groping for God so as to find him, though he is not far from either one of us. And the Bible lets us know that God did this, determined the seasons of your habitation and the boundaries of your habitation. Why? So that you can seek the Lord. I hope that you have sought after the Lord this morning. I don't know what to say about somebody who hasn't taken the time out to seek after the Lord because the very reason why God caused you to be born in this country at the time you were born in this country is so that you could seek after him. And if you haven't sought after the Lord this morning, what shall I say? What shall I say? 
God is good, and I just want to thank the elders for inviting me to be here on this morning to speak, and thanks to Jeff for inviting me to be here this morning to speak. I want to say thanks to uh, Steve for inspiring the subject. We're talking about evangelism, but I didn't, didn't just want to talk evangelism. If you know anything about the history of this church, we know a little bit of something about evangelism. We've been doing it for quite some time. You see, we've been evangelizing for a while. The very reason why I'm here is because the church was out evangelizing, you see. Happened to have the nerve, the courage to come over to my neighborhood and knock those doors. And thank God my girlfriend at the time, Rhonda, responded to the gospel. And then when she said, uh, well, now that I'm a Christian, I can't have nothing else to do with you. I said, boy, if there's a God up there, I'm mad at him. But then I learned better. And they say, when you learn better, you do better. I got to come into this church so often, to so many Bible studies and so many worships, I just assumed I was saved. Just assumed it. One night, Monday night Bible study up there on the, the fourth level up there, I believe it's the fourth level. We're all just singing. You know, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, a common love and everything like this, just a hugging each other. Joyce took my hand off of her and said, you ain't my brother in Christ yet. I said, what you mean? I've been coming to this church, to the worship, to the Bible studies. You ain't been baptized into Christ. And back at that time, this may seem very trivial to some of you, but at that time, there was a little song that was popular. That song said, uh, it's better to have and not need than need than not have. I said, is baptism the only thing that's holding us up for me being a brother in Christ? Called up Ray Farmer. Ray Farmer came on over here, baptized me that very Monday night, May the 8th, 1978. I'll never forget it. And then finally, when I came on Monday night studies, I can hug Joyce and she said, yeah, you my brother, finally. Finally, you my brother in Christ. So you see, we've been about evangelism here for a long time. So I didn't want to just talk about evangelism. I want to talk about a vehicle through which we can accomplish evangelism. A vehicle through which we can accomplish evangelism. And that vehicle I've chosen to focus on this morning is the food pantry. You're probably thinking, oh, come on now, EK. That's just something we do to help folks uh, down and out, out of luck, you know, need a little food. But that is a wonderful vehicle through which evangelism can be accomplished. And so I'll spend a little time talking about that. I just thought about something. It's been 42 years since I was last up here. 42 years since I was last up here. And uh, my dear sister Gwen, she's she, she going to get mad at me because I'm going to have to tell this little story. <laughs> she's sure going to be mad at me when she finds out that I said it. My first uh, speech up here lasted over an hour, about an hour and 20 minutes. The congregation was so wonderful and patient with me, so wonderful and patient, especially Gwen. Gwen had the most confidence in me than everybody else in the congregation because she slept and snored the loudest. <laughs> Forgive me, Gwen. I, I shouldn't have said all that. I, I apologize. Don't get, don't get mad at me, Steve. I'm, I'm, I shouldn't have said all that. But after the, the speech was over with, Gwen, trying to be a good, encouraging sister in Christ, 
she came over to me and said, oh, E.K., what a wonderful lesson. That was very good. And I said, well, how would you know you slept through the whole thing? <laughs> been fun, been funny and, and, and joking. But we have a problem when it comes to uh, evangelizing. We as individual Christians, we have a problem. The situation most believers find themselves is this. They lack opportunity to share their faith. They lack opportunity to learn and become proficient at sharing their faith. But if they had a vehicle that allowed for practice, they could learn how to become proficient at sharing their faith. Proficient at sharing Jesus, it becomes a matter of practice, you know. Everything is a matter of practice, you understand. For example, there's this young lady. She liked this guy and wanted to be asked out on a date. But he had an issue with stammering. Each time in the midst of asking her out, his words would become so unintelligible that he would up and just walk away. One day, he approached her, approached her and said, Maggie, uh, I want to take you out and have a night on the town. We'll, we'll picnic together. Then we'll walk through the park, you see, and we'll have dinner, and, and then we'll take in a movie, and, and later I'll just drive you home. She said, yes. She was so impressed. And then she asked, how were you able to speak without stammering? Lord, forgive me. He responded, Lord, forgive me. I hope I didn't offend nobody. But the point is he practiced. When you got him off of those words that he had practiced for so long, the stammering came back. The whole point is that most believers have no place to practice with regularity sharing Jesus Christ. They're generally discouraged, discouraged from openly sharing at work. Most employers frown on the idea of people sharing Jesus when they ought to be working. Amen. Believers who use their working hours to share their faith are considered unproductive. It's one thing I, I learned to uh, not enjoy seeing. I don't want to say the word hate, but I didn't enjoy seeing believers, when they should be productive at work, taking that time to talk about Jesus. That's not the time to do it. So they don't have an opportunity to do that. Moreover, when it comes to our Sunday morning worships and, and when it comes to our, our Wednesday night Bible class and whatever nights of the week you might have a Bible class, uh, those times are not ideal times to discuss the deeper issues of love and forgiveness and the concepts of God because most visitors are in a hurry on Sunday. They come and get their worship on and then they're ready to scat. They're ready to get on the road. Maybe they're traveling or maybe they're trying to get out to lunch or somewhere. So, so they're usually uh, in a hurry and consequently what happens in the life of the congregant, there is no consistent opportunity to share Jesus with people. And then, as we grow more accustomed to not sharing our faith, it becomes easier to just be nice to people and hope they will associate our kindness with Christ. But that's no real way to be evangelistic, my brothers and sisters. We need a consistent way to draw people's attention 
to the message of the cross. Now, Jesus used shock and awe to draw people's attention to the message of the cross. Jesus employed what I call the unbelievable and the undeniable to draw people's attention to the cross. He made claims that were so unbelievable, in fact, they were considered blasphemous. But those unbelievable claims were backed by undeniable evidence. For example, in John 8, 58, you remember what Jesus said, before Abraham was, what? I am. And by the way, if you look at the etymology, look at that language there, those are the same words that were used when God spoke to Moses and said, I am that I am. Unbelievable for a human being to make a phrase like that. Not only that, John 2 and 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise, raise it up. And of course, the Jews thought he was talking about the temple who had taken over 40 years to build. He wasn't talking about that. He was actually talking about his death, burial, and resurrection, that he would raise himself from the grave in three days. Nevertheless, unbelievable claim. In John 4 and 26, he said, I who speak to you am the Messiah. He actually said, I who speak to you am he, but he meant the Messiah. Just absolute unbelievable. Here's one that really throws me. In John 14 and 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Unbelievable thing to say. One of the most shocking words spoke by Jesus was the one that was read in your hearing, Mark 2 and 9 and following. In Mark 9 and 2 and 9, uh, Jesus said, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Have you thought about what Jesus is doing here? There's a sense in which he's trivializing. Now, he's not really trivializing what's about to take place, but he is trying to demonstrate his power and authority on earth. He is saying and communicating to this people, it is just as easy for me to forgive this man's sins as it is for me to tell this man, heal this man, and tell him to take up his bed and walk. So he says, which is easier for me? But because human beings cannot see sins being forgiven, you know, I can look at you and you can look at me and we can't tell whether each other's sins have been forgiven or not. But we can certainly tell if somebody's been healed or not. And so since healing is a visible demonstration, he used the healing as a visible demonstration to show something that's happening in the invisible realm, the healing. So he heals the man, which was visible, to demonstrate the unseen, and that is that he forgave the man his sins. Now that is very, very shocking, and that is very unbelievable. But nevertheless, these things are undeniable. Because Jesus backed up everything he said with claims and he backed it up with proof. Because the proof was that the man got up, took up his pallet, and then he walked. So you see, what I get from this is this. The primary purpose of miracles wasn't to healing. Healing was a byproduct. Healing was good enough. But they were to point people to the message of the cross. It was Jesus' way of applying shock and awe. It was his way of uh, demonstrating the uh, backing up the unbelievable with the undeniable. The purpose was to confirm that Jesus' claims were true. But the issue at hand is this. We cannot produce the same kind of shock and awe that our Lord could. 
But we can offer unbelievable and unde- the unbelievable and the undeniable. We can offer to people an experience. Here at this building, so wonderful that it is unbelievable. Your pantry should be set up, if, if, if I could be so bold as to make a suggestion to you, your pantry should be set up in such a way that recipients and congregants develop long-term relationships. This can be accomplished in several ways. One of the ways is that the focal point is entirely on the recipient. That everything is designed to invite and promote conversation and engagement with the recipient. It's one thing to get food from a pantry. It's entirely another thing when you are treated like a rock star at the pantry. People who are are regular recipients at food pantries, they're often looked down upon, actually. They're treated like scavengers. They're treated like bottom feeders. They're treated like beggars. They're viewed as unsuccessful and lazy, too lazy to work. They're, They're forced to wait outside in long lines to compete for food well past this sell-by date. People staffing these pantries, oh my goodness. The people staffing some of these pantries sometimes display a spirit of arrogance, superiority over these unfortunate food recipients, you see. And that is not the way a pantry should be set up, and that is not the feeling a recipient ought to receive. But if a pantry recipient were treated like a dignitary, like a VIP, if the recipients were treated like doctors and lawyers or or councilmen and senators and and, and rock stars, or or how would you treat President Biden if he came here? You would give him a certain way. There would be a certain kind of respect you would give him. What if we gave our pantry recipients that same kind of honor and that same kind of respect? You see? It offers the unbelievable when a pantry recipient, when pantry recipients are treated as stars. It offers the unbelievable when pantry recipients are treated as if they were the most important people in the room. It offers the unbelievable when the congregants bow down and offers mental homage towards that recipient. It offers unbelievable, the unbelievable when the congregant says to the recipient, thank you, thank you, thank you for receiving this food. We couldn't have done it without you. You see, the recipient, to the recipient, this feels unbelievable. They don't get that kind of treatment other places. It's unbelievable that the recipients are are, are treated with honor, that they feel a sense of dignity and honor, that they feel special by being here, almost as if they are doing us a favor when they come to receive the food, these kinds of things are unbelievable to them. It's unbelievable that a church will pray for you and take your food order and then box your food for you. It's unbelievable that the church will walk with you while pushing your food on a cart to your car and while walking together asking, probing kinds of questions like, how is your family? How are your children? How is your health? How are you doing? Are there other things we can do as a church to help you get by. You see, these things here are unbelievable because most people are ushered in, get their box of food, and then they're gone. You don't see them until the next time. But during that experience, during that time when they are here, they're feeling a sense of special, that they're special, and they're, they're feeling a sense of awe. But then there's the undeniable. It's undeniably true 
when these people get back home and say, wait a minute, those people treated us so nice there. What are they trying to get? What, they're trying to get us to give an offering? Or they're trying to get us to get something? In the, in the, that's what they want to do. They want an offering from us. They want a tithing. And then they get back and realize, no, they, they've never asked a dime from us. They just loved us. And so after a while, it becomes undeniably true that the church has offered these kinds of experiences to these recipients. So I propose this. I propose the recipients that come to receive the food have an area that they're waiting in, that they wait on their food. And while, they're, while the members are packing their food, the visitors have opportunity to observe the current events. They're able to look at the walls of the church. They're able to see what's coming up. Maybe there's a vacation Bible school over here. Maybe somebody's getting married over there. Maybe there's a lectureship series coming up and there's a special speaker coming in. Uh, maybe there's a, a AAA uh, a, a meeting and uh, survivors of abuse kind of a meeting. They're looking on the walls and becoming familiar with this church. And when something takes place in their life, they recall that, wow, that church that we get the food at, the place that we're at all the time, they have a, they have a program that addresses this things that's taking place. And so that's a beautiful time while the food is being prepared for them. They're sitting, getting familiar with the church building and also becoming familiar with one another. And the beautiful thing is that when the congregant, when you guys are walking, I propose you walk the food to the car with the recipients and thereby begin to develop further relationship with them. A bond develops between the recipient and the congregant. And in time... When the recipient has some kind of crises in their life, guess who they're going to tell about it? They're going to tell the congregant that's been walking them out to the car all this time. They won't get the same congregant to walk them out. But after a while, they may get to a point where they fall in love and, and like one particular uh, pantry staff. And they'll say, will you walk me to my car? There's this motorcycle guy named Big Joe. Big old Harley Davidson. And that guy would have me walk him to his car, to his motorcycle, every time we pack all that food in there. And it got to where me and George just got to be on a first-name basis, and, and we became uh, a friend. So over the course of time, these people will want to tell you their story because they begin to see you as genuine. I remember this guy named Joe Diekman. He used to come to the pantry all of the time. A big old strong German with a big old husky German voice. And over the course of time, Joe and I started a Bible study, and we would have that Bible study on Tuesday mornings. And I'm telling you, Joe would get so loud with me that the staff would come in and peek in my office to see if I'm all right, thinking maybe Joe had attacked me up in there or, or something like that. Well, we've been going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You see, Joe was convinced that he could be saved apart from baptism, he could be saved absolutely without baptism. And so that's what we were going round and round about. And then one cold morning, I remember it was cold outside, and we're sitting there in the office, and Joe says, E.K., I want to be baptized. And I'm thinking, man, Joe, the water's cold. Maybe let's do it tomorrow. <laughs> you know, shouldn't have been thinking that way. But he said, no, I want to be baptized. We took Joe, baptized him. When I got out of the water, dried up, went back, I noticed Joe is still in the, is still in the baptistry. He's still in the water. I look up in there. He's up in there praying. So finally, he gets dried off and comes back to the office and everything. And I said, Joe, uh, what, why were you up there so long? He said, well, 
I was just up there praying. He said, you know what, E.K., I realized something. I should have been baptized a long time ago, but I just did not want to be wrong. He said, uh, 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 I had too much pride to, to, to accept the fact that I, too, like everybody else, needed to have my sins forgiven, needed to repent and be baptized in Jesus Christ. There's a girl named Kelly Goodman. This girl's 34 years old, homeless, with four children between the ages of 12 and 1. This girl was coming to our pantry on a regular basis. Lo and behold, without any prompting, she began coming to the Bible classes and become, began coming to worship. She and her oldest daughter were baptized in Christ. And the sad thing is, is our, our church really wasn't ready, I don't think. You say, well, why do you say that, Brother Kelly? It's because of this. The leaders began scolding this young lady because she got to worship late. Can you imagine being homeless two or three years, having children, four children from 12 to 1, just now recently baptized. We finally got her a house, but it took her a while to get four people ready to come to church on Sunday morning. And when she was late, the people would scold her. Uh, brothers and sisters, if people were, when people come to Christ, give them time to grow. They're not where you are. You've been walking after Christ 10, 12, 15, 30 years. Yeah, you're always on time. You're prompt. But they're not always prompt, and they're not always on time. Uh, Vincent Pina. Here's a guy who's an interesting story. He thought God was literally out to kill him. He believed God's number one aim was to trick him. He believed that even if he obeyed the gospel and made it to heaven, that God would come find him somewhere in heaven and say, Vincent, go to hell. I tricked you. I didn't want you up here in the first place. He was so convinced that God was out to get him. We had a Bible study for about uh, a year or so. And then I noticed that he started coming to Sunday worships. And then it came a point in time where Vincent began to just linger at the church, at the worship. He would linger. One day he was lingering so long that Rhonda went up and asked him and said, Vincent, are you all right? He didn't say much. And then Rhonda said, you want to be baptized, Vincent? And he said in a low voice, yeah, I want to be baptized. We took Vincent that very hour, baptized him into Christ. Then three weeks, Vincent was dead. Thank God for the food pantry. They led him to Christ eventually. Finally, I'm going to tell this. I got two more stories. How much time do I have? When do I stop, Jeff? <laughs> this girl here, this girl touches my heart. This one here, guys, it, it hits me here. Interesting story. She was an adult living with mental disabilities. She was a regular recipient at the food pantry. She came regularly to Bible classes and, and worship. She's living with mental disabilities, but she wanted to be baptized, and I wasn't one to turn her away. This girl would get to church an hour and a half, sometimes two hours early in Chicago in the dead of winter. And she would sit outside in her cold car. And sometimes I would just put on my coat and go out there and say, Joan, what are you doing out here? She said, oh, E.K., I'm just reading the scripture. And she often would read from the Old Testament. I would always say, Joan, Joan, do you understand what you're reading? She would say, no, because she was illiterate. She couldn't read. But she was so proud to see me on Sunday mornings and highlight all these long lengths of chapters in Ezekiel and, and, and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. She said, oh, I read, I read five, six pages this morning, E.K. I said, but do you understand any of it, Joan? She would just say, 
No? Joan Knott. Then there was Richard and Ginger Collins. Richard and Ginger Collins is an interesting story because they were strangers when they first come to the food pantry. And then they would come on a regular basis, and after a while they see each other and begin to know one another. There came a point in time where uh, Richard noticed that Ginger wasn't coming to the pantry to get her food. So Richard would get his food and take his food over to uh, Ginger's house and give it to her. Once we learned of this, we made, gave permission and okay for uh, Richard to take Jones, uh, uh, Ginger's food right directly to her house. And so he began doing that. Joan, uh, 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 Ginger had a, uh, a, a life-threatening illness uh, that, that threatened her. And so we, I don't know, remember what it, what it was exactly. But she came upon where she couldn't drive. And, and Richard would pick her up on Tuesday mornings and bring her to the pantry. And they would leave together. Over the course of time, they got to know one another. They were both widowers. So Richard proposed marriage and Ginger accepted. And they wanted me to do the ceremony. I said, yeah, I'll do the ceremony. But you know what the best thing you guys can give one another is a Christian spouse. So we began studying the Bible and marriage. And six months later, uh, I performed the, the ceremony. Now, Ginger had an adult son named Ezekiel. Didn't care much for any churches, religious organizations, none of that. Said he wasn't an atheist, but he said he was an agnostic about everything. But he was so impressed with the love that church showed his mama. The marriage, at the marriage uh, ceremony, he came forward and said, E.K., I want to be baptized. We baptized him in Christ right after the, the, the wedding. So, brothers and sisters, don't tell me what a food pantry can't do. You can do a whole lot of things with a food pantry. It's more than just giving some food away to some people who are down and out. It's all about having a ministry through them. And the effects of a pantry, the long-term effects of a food pantry is enormous. The recipients become familiar with the members of the church who serve them periodically. Family, families, when they experience crises, they will, experience, they will request prayers. They will want the elders to come into their house and all that kind of a thing. Sometimes the visiting families, without even prompting, will decide that they want to come to the church services. Many long-term recipients of our pantries actually become pantry volunteers. They say, look, I've been receiving food two years. What do you say I tried and help and give some food away? And for certainly, for sure, we let them do it. But also there's long-term effects on the congregation, and this is probably the most important, or just as important. It provides the congregation with a revolving and reoccurring opportunity to meet new people. How often do you meet new people in your life right now? Where can you go on a regular basis and, and be most assuredly meet somebody new? I suggest to you, brothers and sisters, it's the pantry that you can do that. That's one of the things that allow you to have that reoccurring opportunity. And at first, you're, too, you're shy. You may not know how to share your faith. But over the course of the time, you've been taking this food for these people back and forth to their car. You're on a first-name basis by now. You know that they love gardening. You know that they like to paint. They like to decorate houses or they, they like uh, singing or music or whatever it is. And lo and behold, you come to find out that you and they... Share certain things that you both like. And next thing you know, you're calling each other in the evenings. And you're seeing each other uh, throughout the week. And lo and behold, they ask you the question, well, why do you go to that church? I, I like that church. And you find yourself without even trying, sharing your faith with those individuals. And so it's, it's a long-term positive effect on the congregation. I don't know how many of you have led somebody to Christ. I don't know. 
But I know one thing. After one or two years of having this kind of a pantry experience, where you, over the course of time, you're, you're no longer afraid. Over, after a while, you're looking for that open door to share Jesus with one of these uh, people, with somebody. And what happens is, so uh, let, let's say there's a staff of 10 individuals on the pantry. And so after a while, maybe nobody has shared the gospel. Then all of a sudden, one shared. And then that one is shared a second time. And then they've shared a third time and maybe a fourth time. And lo and behold, the other pantry recipients or um, uh, uh, staff is watching what's going on. And then they get emboldened and get a little cursed. I'm going to share my faith with somebody. I've been taking uh, Miss Susie's food to her car for the last eight months now. Every Tuesday, I'm going to ask her about Jesus Christ. And before you know it, it's almost, it's not quite exponential growth. But you look up one, two, three years later, and you got several individuals in the congregation very comfortable and proficient even at sharing their faith. Very comfortable and even proficient at turning strangers into people who love the Lord. So I propose opening each pantry session with a prayer. Everybody get together and say a prayer and then at least read and recite two passages from Jesus. In Matthew 25, 36 and following, Jesus said this, and this is a pantry, this is a passage that we read every time the doors of the pantry were open. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these, <laughs> you did it to me. Matthew 4 and 4, he says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. We used to sing a song here. I used to love this song. I don't know if we still sing it here anymore. There's a sweet spirit. And it's the spirit of that song and the feeling that that song uh, uh, gave to me is the feeling that I hope that pantry recipients feel when they come to this pantry, and more importantly, when they come to worship. But I want them to feel the words of this song. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, and I know that it's the spirit of the Lord. There are sweet expressions on each face, and I know it's the presence of the Lord. Sweet Holy Spirit, sweet heavenly dove, stay right here with us, filling us with your love. And this is the part I hope that they feel. And for these blessings that they've received from this church, we lift our heart in prayer. Without a doubt, we'll know that we have been revived when we shall leave this place. If you're here this morning and you've been visiting for a while, you've heard the gospel preach, you've met all the staff, the elders, leaders, and everybody here, and maybe that question uh, came to your mind, that question that came, uh, that came when somebody said, uh, what must I do to be saved over in Acts 2 and 38? If you've ever asked that question and wondered, I want to propose a few, few things. 
First of all, you come by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible lets us know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10 and 17. You come by believing the things that you've heard, believing the things that you've experienced. For Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. You come by repentance. That is so critical. One thing, nothing, nothing irks me more than a so-called Christian who's unrepentant in the heart. You know, he says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish over in Luke 13, 3. And then Jesus says, you, you come by confession. Jesus said, if you confess me, I will confess you before my father who is in heaven. But here's the other side of that, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus said, if you don't confess me, I ain't going to confess you. And then you come by way of baptism over in Acts 2 and 38 after those people said, men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? Peter responded and said, let each and every one of you repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2.38. And then Revelation 2 and 10 just simply asks us to be faithful until death while together we stand and we sing.